Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Episode 126. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Viborg Thu. Since my last episode, the one concluding the saga of Carol Bundy and her accomplices, I have been very much warmed by the love and support from my very dear listeners. So many of you have left lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts and I cherish and read every one of them. Reading all these lovely reviews have been an absolute joy. A couple of people have actually invited me and my wife to their homes in the United States of America. This is what I love about America, the hospitality and generosity of spirit. Here in Norway, people are far more introverted and standoffish towards strangers, but not in the land of the free, home of the brave. As I stated on Facebook, do not listen to the media spin too much, especially when it comes to how Europe views America. Most of us Europeans love America dearly, and I do so wish that the troubles you are experiencing these days will blow over soon. With all that being said, I welcome you, dear listener, to a brand new serial killer expose. This time it will not be a series, but a standalone episode. It has been a challenge finding source material for this case. especially since most of it is in German and I am not fluent in German but I do think I have gotten a thrilling story together of one of the most disturbed and deviant serial killers of all time why tonight's subject is not as super famous as for example BTK or the Yorkshire Ripper is beyond me His crimes surpass most serial killers by leagues and bounds. 
Only the world record holders Pedro Lopez and Luis Garavito surpass him in regard to utter depravity. We do not, as you might have suspected, stay in the United States of America this time, nor in the Americas. I take you back to my home continent, Europe. Western Europe's most populous country is Germany, and that is where we travel. The time period stretches from the dystopian terror regime of the Nazis to the bleak post-war industrial period dominated by the Cold War. I am, of course, talking about Joachim Kroll, the West German cannibal. In his mother tongue, simply known as the Duisburger Menschenfresser. On patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast, there is now a brand new episode available exclusively to my $10 plus club. The topic is not a serial killer, but a killer nonetheless, and a female one to boot. Oh, and did I mention she's a cannibal? There are, of course, many more bonus episodes available to those who pledge $10 or more, but I really do recommend this latest one. It is quite titillating, if I do say so myself. So don't miss out. Head on over to patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast now. As usual these days, this episode is 100% sponsored ad-free. I am completely at my dear patron's mercy if this show is to continue, and I am especially thankful to those of you that belong to the TSK Producers Club. Instead of reading your names at the end, I want to honor these loyal patrons and serial killer aficionados here in the introduction. These 24 patrons are Amber, Amy, Anne, Anthony, Cassandra, Bill K, Christy, Evan, James, Jennifer, Jesse, Kathy, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Monica, Philip, Russell, Samantha, Samira, Scotnia, Vanessa, and Zashia. You all have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. Germany on the brink of dictatorship. The Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, or National Socialist German Workers' Party, 
more commonly known simply as the Nazi Party, had in the federal election of July 1932 won 37.3 of the popular vote, becoming the single largest party in the German Reichstag, with 230 out of 608 seats. And in January of 1933, the Nazis' leader, their Führer, was made Chancellor of Germany. It was only a few months after this shift towards utter dictatorship and totalitarianism that something else wicked into this world came. Joachim Kroll was the eighth child born to a mining family in Hindenburg. He was born on the 17th of April 1933. He was labelled mentally challenged since his IQ was measured to be only 76. In the small town where he lived with his family, people considered him to be stupid, and they often teased and tormented him as a young child and even when he was older. As such, young Joachim joins the ranks of many who were severely bullied in childhood only to emerge as psychopathic serial killers as adults. Germany in the late 1930s were a place where hatred of anything different and totalitarianism ruled supreme. Tolerance for anyone the slightest bit different than what was the accepted norm was not only absent, such people were actively shunned and oftentimes outright killed. Luckily for Joachim, he was not shipped off to a concentration camp or mental hospital, where he would probably have been euthanized under the Nazis' extensive human euthanasia program. Instead, he was simply regarded as the village idiot. Someone odd and stupid, but ultimately harmless. He came from a non-Jewish German family and his father was a soldier for the German Wehrmacht. This fact, combined with his father dying in the service of the German Reich, probably further protected Joachim from any Nazis hunting for outsiders and so-called Untermensch to exterminate. When the war was over in 1945, his mother and siblings didn't have much of an income since the German state was under Allied control and there was no pensions being given out to families of German soldiers. As such, the family was forced to move to a much smaller home. This home, a small farm, was only two rooms, in which his mother, as well as his six sisters and one brother, had to live together. Nine people in two small rooms offer little in the form of privacy. The little schooling he had was all in the period of 1940-1945, the height of the Second World War. Schools in Germany at the time was 100% Nazified, with all subjects heavily focused on Nazi ideologies such as social Darwinism, the superiority of the Germanic race, and obedience to the Nazi party and its ultimate leader, Adolf Hitler. Unsurprisingly, Joachim was not popular at school, and the Nazi teachers had no time for someone like him. It was thus only five years of schooling that Kroll would be able to attain. 
At this time, just as the war was over and the family had moved, he was forced to go and work on the family's farm. The family supported themselves with the work they did on the farm and often counted on the meat from the animals that they slaughtered in order to feed the large family. He did not mind working on the farm and rather enjoyed the comfort and security that was found there with his mother and his siblings. In addition to constant bullying from both teachers and classmates at school, Joachim had a chronic problem with bedwetting. These things made sure that he grew up having extremely low self-esteem, and he was very anxious about ever leaving the safety of the family farm. There was nowhere else in the world that he would rather have been than there with his beloved mother. He lived with his mother until the age of 22 in 1955, when she died. It seems that his mother kept him altogether. She was the lifeline of the family, and Kroll was pained upon her death. At the age of 22, Joachim Kroll moved to Duisburg in northwest Germany. It was shortly after the death of his mother that things turned for the worse for Kroll. Although he somehow managed to find simple employment, he was unable to properly care for himself. With his third grade education and severe developmental problems, he quickly ended up living on the streets of Duisburg. While some would consider this to be a major hardship, Kroll did not. He lived fine on the streets, and even made friends with many of the kids in the neighborhood. Oftentimes handing out candy and snacks to the youngsters, they gave Kroll the nickname Uncle Joachim. Kroll would later afford a small flat that he would live in. He was able to maintain his job and keep his flat. On many occasions, Kroll would invite those children that he had made friends with into his home. This would be the start of trouble for Kroll, though he never harmed those children whom he believed were his real, true friends. The little girls that were brought into the home were viewed as nieces to Kroll. They brought him joy and made him smile. And perhaps this is something that the man had never felt before in his entire life. And beknownst to these little girls, was that the dolls and inflatable toys hidden inside of Kroll's closet were toys he was using to practice choking and strangling. He hid this very well from children, and he held his passions inside for these hideous crimes from those around him. Appearance-wise, Joachim was a small man, with big pointy ears, and it was obvious from his appearance there were some mental developmental problems. No one would ever think that a man who seemed so kind and gentle could possibly commit crimes, much less murder someone. Kroll lived in his small flat on Friesenstrasse, Duisburg, for a number of years. He loved the attention that he received from his friends, the neighborhood children, and they were regularly inside his home throughout the years. Even the adults in the community thought that Kroll was a kind-hearted man who wanted nothing more than to be a family man. 
One must also remember that in the 1950s, the idea of a pedophile was extremely foreign to most people. It was very common to let children play outside far away from the control of their parents all day until the sun went down. The thought of children being targeted for sexual crimes simply didn't occur to many people at the time. The first murder took place after his mother passed away. As with so many other aspects of the Kroll case, this too resembles what happened with the infamous Ed Gein in the same time period over in the United States of America. He too had begun his deviant crimes only after his beloved mother had died. It was less than a month after Kroll's mother's passing when he would murder a 19-year-old young woman in late January of 1955. Irmgard Strel was lured by Kroll into a barn after he promised her an expensive gift. Once Kroll got her into the barn, he stabbed her in the neck, causing massive pain, shock, and bleeding. The girl immediately fell to the floor, gurgling and moaning in pain. Kroll immediately straddled her, forcefully removing her hands that were clutching at the wound in her throat. Then he put his hands on her throat, squeezing, until he saw that she was dead. Kroll later said that he had very much wanted sexual relations with her, but knew that she was so beautiful that she was way out of his league. He had gotten an erection in the process of murdering the girl and had proceeded to rape her body vaginally post-mortem. After this, he sliced open her stomach and pulled out all of her entrails and left them by the corpse. It was five days later that her body would be found. One of the most tragic aspects of the Kroll case is that due to police incompetence and a lot of prejudice among the population, many of Kroll's victims were at first blamed on men that had nothing to do with the murders. The first example of this is 16-year-old Manuela Nott. This murder took place on the 16th of June 1959, in Essen. Kroll removed flesh off of her buttocks in this attack, but he also masturbated on her body, leaving his semen behind on her pubic area and face. Tragically, there was a man who, probably after aggressive interrogation by police, confessed to murdering this young girl. He recanted his story later on, but served nearly six years in prison before authorities understood they had made a grave mistake and let him go. This was far from the only murder that other people were charged with, instead of Kroll. Only just over a month later, in July of 1959, a young 24-year-old woman named Clara Fields Tesmar was killed. She was found murdered in a meadow in Rheinhausen. Kroll had taken her by the arm, commanding her to let him have sex with her. However, she started screaming, and this made him hit her over the head. Consequently, they both rolled down the side of the road as he tried to undress her. In the fight, he straddled her and strangled her to death. 
a mechanic named Gunther K was last seen with Tesmer in a Duisburg tavern, the Schultheiskelle. He was arrested, couldn't provide an alibi, and found himself locked up. Six months later, a final inquest was held, and he was proved innocent. But it would last until April 1960, before he was released from prison. In 1962, Kroll murdered 13-year-old Petra Giese. Petra was visiting a fair with a friend, and there Kroll probably lured her away and abducted her to carry her outside of town. She was strangled with a scarf, raped, and partially mutilated. Kroll had ripped the red dress from her body, raped her, and then cut off both her buttocks, as well as her left forearm and hand. Police suspected and arrested minor sex offender and pedophile 52-year-old Vincent Kuhn. He was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment and psychiatric treatment. Here, too, it took six years until authorities understood they had imprisoned the wrong man. Another 13-year-old to have Kroll be the last face she would ever see was Monica Tafel. Kroll spotted her while she was on the way to school. He grabbed her when no one was around and dragged her into a rye field. There he strangled her to death. He did not rape her, but masturbated over her body and cut large pieces of flesh from her buttocks and the back of her thighs. Walter Quicker, 34-year-old and an ex-soldier, was arrested on indications from hostile witnesses that claimed he was the killer. The police had to let him go due to lack of evidence, but his neighbours continued to blame him, and his wife divorced him. Youths would sneer at him, and local shops refused to serve him. On the 5th of October, 1962, Quicker went into the forest outside of town and hung himself from a tree. 20-year-old Ursula Rowling was murdered on Tuesday the 13th of September 1966 around 7pm in Forsterbush Park in Marl. Kroll had told of this crime to police later on. I quote, I saw this woman in the park. She was young with short hair. I spoke to her and then grabbed her around the neck with my right arm. I dragged her into the bushes and threw her on the ground. I choked her until she stopped moving. Then I took off her pants and her other things, and I did it to her. I left her lying there and took the train back to Duisburg. When I got home I was still hot, and I had it with a doll and did it with my hand a couple of times. End quote. Her boyfriend, Adolf Schickel, was accused of the crime since he was the last person that Rowling was known to be with. Police soon wrote him off as a suspect and let him go. However, after being accused of the murder by authorities, his family, her family, and friends, they continued to blame him. Thus, Adolf drowned himself on the 4th of January 1967 in the main river near Wiesbaden. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serialkiller. Kroll did not take on all the usual modus operandi of a serial killer. Most serial killers do things in a certain manner, oftentimes leaving a signature of sorts. They commit their crimes on a regular basis and are usually doing their crimes within a close proximity of their homes or other areas they are familiar with. They also usually kill people in the same manner. This was not the case of Kroll. Kroll was very careful before he committed a murder. He never killed a woman in the same place twice, and most of the murders took place years apart from one another. Sometimes he killed a victim by knife, sometimes by strangulation or by drowning. He did have sex with most of the bodies of his victims post-mortem, and oftentimes also masturbated on the victim. Many, but not all, of the bodies were then mutilated, and pieces of their body and flesh were removed. But the thing that probably threw authorities off his track was that he murdered so many different kind of people. 
While most serial killers have a very specific demographic they hunt, the age of Kroll's victims ranged from 4 to 61 years old. And he didn't just kill girls and women. In 1965, it had been three long years since Kroll had sated his bloodlust by raping and murdering Monica Tafel. Kroll no longer had his fill by masturbating into his sex dolls while reliving the memories of previous kills. He wanted something fresh, and he wanted it now. And so it was that on the 22nd of August he wandered around the lovers' lanes in Grusenbaum, a wooded area south of Duisburg, got his sight of a young woman named simply Rita A., making love to a 25-year-old Hermann Schmitz in their Volkswagen. Instead of waiting until the couple had finished, and the boyfriend leaving the woman to herself, Kroll wanted immediate satisfaction. In order to do that, he had to get the man out of the way. He punched a knife through a tire of the car, whereupon Schmitz gets out to see what happened. Kroll leapt forward and stabbed him in the chest, straight into Schmitz's heart, killing him almost instantly. While he stands over the young man's dying body, he turned his gaze to the girl, looking ravenous. The girl has watched in despair, but instead of sitting there, frozen like a lamb before slaughter, she jumps in the driver's seat, disregarding the flat tire, hoots the horn like frantic, and drives straight off towards Kroll, who barely manages to turn his heels and make his escape. As we know, Kroll was quite stupid, and he simply didn't comprehend that women actually had agency on their own. In his mind, they only existed to please men. Rita managed to contact the police, and soon the area was swarming with officers, but no trace of the mysterious frenzied attacker was found. Kroll's second youngest identified victim was five-year-old Iluna Harke. She was killed on the 22nd of December 1966 near Remschied Hukeswagen. This young girl's body was discovered floating in a creek. Kroll abducted her in Essen, took her on a city train to Wuppertal, there boarded a bus and got off somewhere in the wooded area, where he continued for about 500 meters down through dense bushes to a creek named Feldbach. One of the reasons it took police a long time to catch Kroll was that he often killed using various methods, not just the same method over and over. Instead of strangling the girl, Kroll had drowned her before raping her post-mortem and cutting off a great amount of her flesh. According to Kroll himself, he had not strangled the girl simply because he was interested in seeing what it looked like for someone to die from drowning. Only a few months after killing the small child Iluna, Kroll tried to rape and murder another girl, 10-year-old Gabrielle Putman. He had seen her walking in a cornfield, north of Duisburg in Kirchelm. He approached the child and started to show her pornographic photos and told her to do the same to him as the women did to the men in the photos. The girl panicked and started to scream. 
just as Kroll is choking the life out of the little girl, he hears the, at the time, very common sound of the end-of-shift whistle coming from very close by. There is a mine there, and he knew that dozens of working men would be able to see him in a few seconds if he doesn't get away. So he let up his grip and ran away. Luckily for Gabrielle, she was neither raped nor killed, but spent eight days in a coma before waking up. Kroll was by now extremely frustrated. He hadn't felt any release after his attack on Gabrielle, only frustration of being interrupted. So, on the 12th of July, 1967, he murdered his oldest victim, 61-year-old Maria Hetkin. Kroll went on a little trip from Duisburg to Essen by train, then took a bus to Verden for a stroll on the banks of the Baldenay Lake. There he encountered Hetkin and got a quote-unquote tickling feeling all over, according to himself. He started talking to her, suggesting they have sex, but she declined. As a response, he punched her in the face, so she fell into some bushes. There he straddled her, raped her, and strangled her to death. Her body was found the next day. Unlike many of his child victims, no flesh had been cut from her. Police had no idea who was behind the attack. The attacks of 1967 seemed to have cooled Kroll off a bit. So let me tell you, dear listener, what Kroll did when he wasn't working or out hunting victims. He was cooking. As told, many of his victims had large pieces of meat and limbs cut from their bodies. They were missing from the crime scenes. Kroll had taken them back to his small apartment, where he used the flesh as the main ingredient in his dinners and lunches. He often stored limbs and flesh in his apartment for extended periods of time, much in the same manner as Jeffrey Dahmer did. When they were used up, he went hunting for more. Again, after his killing spree in 1967, three years pass. On the 21st of May, 1970, he's hunting again stumbles upon 13-year-old Jutta Rahn, who had taken a shortcut between the Hersel train station and her house on the Essener Strasse in Breitscheid. He raped her and strangled her to death. Again, someone who had nothing to do with her death is accused. Jutta's neighbor and sometime secret boyfriend, 20-year-old Peter Sky, is suspected, and on the 9th of June was taken into custody. He would end up spending 15 months in prison before being released due to lack of evidence. He then moved to Holland to avoid continued harassment by his neighbors, friends and family. These murders were covered extensively in the local press, and I can't help but wonder if Kroll got an extra sense of satisfaction seeing how other men, men who were successful on the sexual marketplace, got charged with his crimes. 
By 1976, Kroll supposedly has kept quiet for six years. On the 8th of May 1976, 10-year-old Karin Töpfer is strangled and raped in Dinslaken Verde. She has been on her way to school when Kroll ended her short life. In all the long years from Kroll's first murder in 1955, the police has not connected these murders to one serial killer. Luckily for the world, on the 2nd of July 1976, Kroll made a fatal mistake. He was living in a three-room flat in Duisburg and was still known to the neighborhood children as Uncle Kroll or Uncle Joachim. One of the children who knew him by this name was four-year-old Marion Ketter. It had only been two months since his last murder, that of Karin Topfer, but his lust for rape and murder of the small four-year-old child boiled inside of him. Instead of waiting until he could attack her in a secluded spot, he lured the child into his flat. Once inside, he quickly choked her to death, stopping her from screaming. Then he masturbated over the body and proceeded to cut the whole body into pieces. Just as in the case of Dennis Nilsson, it was the murder and storing of human remains in his apartment that would prove to be his undoing. When a neighbor told the police about a blocked drain, Kroll told the officers at his door that he had only slaughtered a small rabbit. The investigators was not convinced, and they asked to see his kitchen. When Kroll led the investigators to his kitchen, they found Marion's hand boiling in a pot with carrots and potatoes, and some packs of tender meat wrapped in plastic in the fridge. Taken into custody and put under questioning, Kroll reacted in a very similar matter as Dennis Nielsen had done. He readily admitted to the crime and said he was aware that he was sick, needed some treatment, and wanted to go back home as soon as possible. A couple of days later, Kroll was joking with his guards, enjoying the good meals offered and games of cards. Then he said there were actually more quote-unquote things he was responsible for. In the course of a few days, he confessed to 14 murders committed in the previous 20 years. He recounted from his memory details the police even didn't know about and asked to be taken to locations of unsolved crimes to see if he could remember them. Within a week, the German tabloids had a whole story of horror screaming from their front pages. When asked about why he had committed all these terrible crimes, he gave three reasons. First, he was sexually frustrated and felt that he had no means of finding a woman who would have sex with him voluntarily. Today, we might have called someone like this a quote-unquote incel. Second, he said that while growing up, he had witnessed several animals on the family farm being butchered, and he thought that if one could do that to animals, he could do it to people too. The third and final reason was that he simply wanted to feed himself. 
He was rather poor and couldn't afford good meat. The taste of the meat from young women and girls was, according to Kroll, very tender and excellent in taste. During his trial, Kroll was hoping there would be something that would help him stop doing the things that he had been accused of and admitted to doing. He had a total of eight murder counts and one count of attempted murder during his trial. The reason that he was not charged with the other murders was because they were just too difficult to solve and because of the amount of time that had elapsed. It would probably be too much of a hassle to convict him of those murders. The eight charges stood firmly, however. Kroll's trial took 151 days, or just over five months. The trial began in October of 1979. At this time, capital punishment laws were not in place. It had been abolished after the end of the war, which was a good thing for Kroll because it is likely this would have been the chosen punishment for someone that killed so many innocent people. Rather than be given the death penalty, Kroll was convicted of the murders and sentenced to serve nine consecutive life sentences. Because of findings from a psychiatrist, Kroll was not placed inside of a prison cell, but instead inside of a mental institution. He would remain in the mental hospital for just over ten years. On the 1st of July, 1991, Kroll was found dead due to a heart attack. He was 58 years old at the time of his death. And so ends the saga of Joachim Kroll, the West German cannibal. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. The next episode, number 127 in number, will feature a brand new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit The SK Podcast. Thank you, good night, and good luck. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls. And guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on podcastone.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness.